Well, thanks, Daniel, and uh, good morning, and welcome to this amazing movement of God that we just happen to call Calvary Chapel Palos Verdes. You know, I've shared this with some of you, and I don't mind sharing it again because it's just so true, but I've been a Christian 37 years, and I've never, ever, ever been part of something like what God is doing here. So if you're new to us, you came to the right place. If you've been here for a while, I think you, you know what I'm talking about. The message this morning is called The Cornerstone, and it's out of uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, just four little verses, verses 4 through 8. And to kind of set the stage, I want us to think of something that happened in the news a few months ago, actually the end of June last summer, to be precise. And it was the devastating collapse of a building called the Champlain Towers. It was a condominium tower in, in Florida, uh, and its foundation had become corroded and undermined by years and years of water that because of poor drainage and the design of the building, it didn't properly drain away from the building. And a lot of needed maintenance of the building had been put off, uh, and there were many warning signs over the years of these structural problems that had mostly been ignored. And then one day, sadly, uh, in the middle of the night, there was a loud sound like an explosion, and the foundation could no longer support the weight of the building and a large section of the building, which was home to many unsuspecting people, came crashing down. This beautiful building that was in the midst of this idyllic location on the Florida coast uh, had been a safe place, a safe place to come home at night for hundreds and hundreds of people, and all of a sudden, for 98 of them, it became their death trap. And the story of that building is reminiscent of something Jesus talked about when he ended his first big public sermon, which was the Sermon on the Mount, and he compared the results of a storm on two different types of houses, two different buildings, one that was built on the rock and one that was built on the sand. And he said this, if you'll look, at, look with me before we go to 1 Peter, in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. He said this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You see, what you build your house on matters. And even more importantly, because the Bible is primarily a book of life, not a book of architecture and engineering, what you build your life on matters. And so the Lord has led me to start this morning's message off with a question before we look at our text, and that is this. What are you building your life on? What is the foundation of your life? Or more specifically, in view of this section of Scripture for this morning, what is the cornerstone of your life. And this morning we're going to see what the Bible says that that should be. And as I mentioned, our text is the book that we're in, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. And this is from the inspired, inerrant, totally sufficient, and always relevant Word of God, even though it was written 2,000 years ago. And so my prayer this morning is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will make this living and active and able to do God's perfect work in our lives this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll read our text. 
Father God, we are so grateful for Jesus as our cornerstone. We are so grateful for your word, Lord. We pray right now that your Holy Spirit would be um, active in your word as we read it, as we think about it, as we ponder it, as we let it flow through our minds and into our hearts. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not built their life on Jesus as their cornerstone, that this would be the morning that they see their need to do that. Lord, I pray for everyone else here who has made Jesus the cornerstone of their life, that they might find this a time to cast some of those heavy weights and heavy burdens on him because he can hold them all. So will you bless our time together in your word? May you change us. May you make us more in love with you and more amazed at the incredible God that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's go to 1 Peter 2 and pick up um, in verse 4. And let me read. So it says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Lord as they were destined to do. Now if you go back to chapter or to verse 4, the very first words of that verse of our text are these. It says as you come to him. Now think about what that means for a minute, as you come to him. Certainly that implies a volitional act, something that requires that a decision be made to come to him. Because being a Christian involves a choice or a decision to come to Jesus. And note that it is the coming to Jesus that makes someone a Christian. Not the doing of good works or trying harder to be a good person, or living by good morals. I mean, there are plenty of people in the world who are not believers, who do good things. Some who are actually awesome, even inspiring people. Yet if they don't come to Jesus, there is no salvation for them, and they are not Christians. Many religions have great moral systems, and many people live lives of absolutely meticulous morality, and even the smallest things. Yet that does not give them salvation or make them Christians. It is only by coming to Jesus that will save someone's soul and make them a Christian. Because Jesus is the only one who has paid for that nasty little thing we call sin that separates us from God, who is holy. Now, the sense here uh, in the grammar and linguistically, when it says, as you come to Jesus, is that coming to Jesus is not just a one-time thing but rather it is something that is continuous and ongoing, or you might say a continuous, lifelong decision to always keep coming to Jesus. In fact, the best assurance any of us have of our own salvation is not that we prayed a prayer years ago, or that we walked an aisle or raised our hand at a church service or a crusade, but rather that we find ourselves continually coming to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher of 150 years ago, called the Prince of Preachers, said this, and this quote is up on the screen for you, 
He said, the way of salvation is not to come to Christ and then forget it, but to continue coming, to always be coming. Now, sure, there may be times when we drift away, go the other direction, or do what, is what we call sometimes in the church backsliding. But over time, if we keep coming back to Jesus, that is one of the greatest assurances we can have that we are truly saved. Because it is, at the end of the day, the direction of our lives, not the perfection of them that truly matters. Are we headed towards heaven? Are we headed towards greater Christ-likeness? Or are we headed in the opposite direction? That's what matters. Now, let's look at how Jesus is described in these verses, starting in verse 4. And in a general and overall sense, we see him described as something you wouldn't think of normally there, and that is as a stone. And if you think about that at first glance, you might think, wow, that's a little strange, isn't it? I mean, the one who saves us from our sins, this God in, in human flesh who died in a cross and was resurrected, is being described by Peter here, someone who actually knew him really, really well, as a stone. But you see, to understand why that phrase is used, we have to start with the premise that since Jesus is God, and that what he did for us and all that he is for us is so huge and so beyond any sense of our total comprehension that he is essentially indescribable, humanly speaking. You see, every time you and I read the Bible, here we are with these puny, little, finite, uh, prone-to-sin minds, and we're gazing into the infinite, holy, pure, perfect, omniscient mind of God which is actually what makes studying the Bible and reading it and meditating on what it says such an awesome privilege that we get to do that, that we get to gaze into the mind of this God. So when the Holy Spirit, who inspired all these authors, of the human authors of the different books of the Bible, when he would lead them to describe God, whether it's God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, they were moved to use human and earthly terms to describe him that could be more easily grasped grasped, excuse me, by us little human beings. So you see words in the scriptures to describe God or Jesus, like, like shepherd, right, or, or door, or living water, or king, or the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. And the list goes on and on and on, like we sang in the song. There's over a thousand names, and, and it never really stops, because God is so huge and so amazing that not one of those names, not ten of those names, not a hundred of those names, could ever completely and fully describe him. And so here, the first description we have of Jesus, there in verse 4, is as a living stone. Now, that also sounds a little strange, doesn't it? Because we generally know stones to be completely inanimate objects with no signs of life in them, don't we? I mean, when was the last time you ever saw a talking stone? or a walking stone, or a dancing stone, or a breathing stone. And yet Jesus, even though he's called a stone here, is a living stone. Because you see, God is life. And Jesus is God in human flesh. So therefore, Jesus can be called a living stone. And stones also are solid, and they're stable. And yet they can be used to build something on top of them that's permanent, and lasting. And that is one of the understandings of Jesus that we can draw from the use of the word stone here. Because Jesus is unchanging. 
as Hebrews 11.8 says, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we're going to see, Jesus was used to build something, which is what we're all part of here this morning and throughout the week, even when we're not in this building. And that is the church, a group that has existed for over 2,000 years now that knows no borders and involves people of all shapes and sizes and kinds who are all committed to continually coming to Jesus. Now, the Greek word that's used in verse 4 for living is a fascinating word because it's a derivative of the Greek word for life, which was zoe, Z-O-E. And zoe was an all-inclusive word for life that referred to life in its fullest, in all of its different aspects, physical, uh, emotional, spiritual, and intellectual. And it also referred to a life that was given by God. And so when the New Testament uses that phrase, eternal life, it's the word zoe that's being used there for the life part of that phrase. So then to have eternal life means to have God-given life to its fullest in all of its many aspects, forever and without end. And if you're here today or are joining us online and you haven't come to Jesus, don't you want that kind of life? It's really simple to have it. It's right here in the verse we've just read. Just come to Jesus, as verse 4 says, and then just keep on coming to him. Now, sadly, many people, and we're going to see this at the end of our text this morning, end up rejecting this kind of life. And they instead opt for a life that isn't really full and that isn't all-encompassing, but rather is shallow and fleeting as well as unsatisfying, and that sadly ends in permanent death, not permanent life, and alienation from God who is life forever. And that is why the next part of verse 4 says that Jesus, as the living stone, has been rejected by men. But the next part of the verse tells us that God, who thinks a lot bigger and a lot smarter than us, sees this living stone, who the Bible says is his only begotten son, as being chosen and precious, even though men have rejected him. Chosen and precious. Or in other words, something that is highly desirable, because that's what something chosen and precious is. And I can guarantee you, not just from personal experience and the experiences of millions of others throughout history, but most importantly, from the authority of the Word of God, what we're looking at now, that once you have tasted of the goodness of this eternal Zoe that comes from God who is Zoe, you will find it highly desirable and precious as well. And you will also come to understand that the life you were living before or any other type of life that you're trying to live is just a cheap substitute, a cheap alternative. So now, that's verse 4. Let's look at verse 5. Here we see in this verse the glorious truth that when we come to Jesus as this living Zoe stone, we ourselves also become, it says there, like living stones, which of course is because he gives us new life. Peter's already told us, if you remember in chapter 1, from a month or so ago, that Jesus, by his amazing grace, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And so now he, is, now he is telling us that we are no longer like cold stones, and no, I don't mean the ice cream, because that might be a good thing, but that we are now like living stones by coming to Jesus. 
Back in Ezekiel 11, 19 through 20, written about 700 years earlier, God promised that one day he would put his spirit in his people and would remove their hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. And Peter is telling us here in verse 5 that by faith in Jesus, by coming to Jesus, this has become a reality in our lives as Christians because our hearts of stone have now become living and beating hearts of flesh. But now look at what verse 5 also tells us, that he is doing with us as these living stones. We see there that he is building us up as a bunch of living stones into a spiritual house, which is a reference to the church. Not the building, but the church as a spiritual body. You see, Christianity is not just about each one of us individually, although we each must come to Jesus and keep coming to him and make the decision to do that individually. But it is also about what Jesus makes us into together as a bunch of living stones, which is this spiritual house. You see, I loved what one commentator said about this. He said, one living stone does not make a useful, beautiful building. It takes a lot of them, all fitted together tightly. And he went on to say that a stone, even if it's a living stone, sitting off by itself can, can end up being just useless rubble. But lots of stones, when they're fitted perfectly together, can make an amazing building. So there's no fun, you see, in being a Christian. I was just talking to someone about this beforehand. There's no fun in being a Christian just by yourself. That's not how we were supposed to do it. The wonder and the joy of being a Christian comes in being part of something that's bigger than yourself, which is the church, and being part of something that isn't just you as one stone sitting all alone. Now, you see, stones come in all shapes and sizes, all different kinds just as we do, all different colors, different cracks, all sorts of things, and we're just like that. And you know, when they would build ancient buildings, here's the thing to think about. If stones come in all these different sizes, and people would have known that when Peter's saying that, when they would build ancient buildings, they didn't have mortar back in those days. They couldn't go get a bag of ready-crete mortar and and start putting the whole thing um, together like we do. And so to make the building hold together, you know what they had to do? The stonemasons had to come, and they would have to chip away and sometimes use other stones to grind down a stone so that all the stones would eventually fit together quite nicely. And think about it. Isn't that what Jesus has to do with each of us? And we all come into the church or the family of God with lots and lots of rough edges, and we still have a lot of them in us if we're honest with ourselves. And sure, sometimes getting used to the church and the people in it can be difficult. But what part, what part of what Jesus is doing as we submit to him as the heavenly stonemason, if you will, is he's using these things in our life. And they can sometimes be events in our lives or things that happen to us or sometimes just others we know in the family of God to, to chip away and, and to rub away at our rough edges so that the rough edges on all of us get chipped off and worn down so that we might fit together well into this building that Peter is talking about. And then look at what the next part of verse 5 says that he turns us into now that we have these hearts of flesh as living stones. And he says there that it is as a royal priesthood. 
And you see, a priest in, in all religions is someone who, among other things, represents God before man. And if that is what we as the body of Christ are called to do as we live out and proclaim the life of Jesus to a lost and dying world, now you can see why we are a holy priesthood representing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent to this world. You know, elsewhere in Scripture, specifically at the end of Ephesians uh, 6, I think around verse 18, and then at the end of 2 Corinthians 5, we are also referred to as ambassadors. And an ambassador is someone, if you think about this, living in a foreign land who represents his or her president, prime minister, or king in a land that is not their own. And as an ambassador, they are always graciously seeking to present their president, their prime minister, or their king in the best possible light and to advance his or her agenda. And so you see, that is us. We are citizens of a foreign land, heaven. That's our eternal forever home. But we're here in this place that is not our permanent home. We're just sojourners. We're just passing through. And yet while here, we are called to, with great love and great grace, present our king, who is Jesus, in the best possible light, and to always be seeking to advance his agenda, which is the salvation of the lost. And so, you can call us a living stone, as Peter does here, a priest or an ambassador, but that is how we are supposed to live and think of ourselves. But a priest is also someone in many different religions, and certainly in the Old Testament, someone who offers sacrifices. And yet, look at our text and see what type of sacrifice it is. It says that we as priests of our Lord Jesus Christ are called to offer. And it says there in verse 5 that these are spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices. Wow, that's so different from the Old Testament, isn't it? Because those sacrifices were what? They were physical sacrifices of animals who were killed and whose blood was sprinkled or spread all over the altar. But we don't have to do that anymore. Aren't you glad for that? I mean, in a humorous sense, that would make church a pretty messy thing every Sunday morning, wouldn't it? Can you imagine what it would be like if every Sunday we had to come up here and and, and do that uh, before the whole congregation? But seriously, the amazing truth is that we don't have to do that anymore because those were sacrifices for sin. And because of what Jesus has already done on the cross, sin has already been paid for, so it's not necessary to sacrifice anything ever again to take away sin. Not animals, not ourselves, not our money, not our works. Nothing needs to be sacrificed for sin because he has paid for it all. So our sacrifices that we give now as these living sacrifices are because Jesus has already paid for our sin. And we are to be just so grateful for it that we can't help but want to give him our all. Or as Paul says in Romans 12:1, to present our bodies, all that we are, as a living sacrifice to God. So our sacrifices now are not so that we can receive God's grace and his forgiveness. Rather, they are because he has already given us his grace and his forgiveness. And that then makes us, out of gratitude, want us to give him ourselves. And again, as Paul calls us, those living sacrifices. 
So when we come to Jesus as this living stone who we've seen makes us into living stones and is fitting us together into this building and has made us a royal priesthood and, and call, asks us to give ourselves as living sacrifices, we now live in what I like to call loving response to God's grace. That's the key to the Christian life, to live in loving response to God's grace, not to somehow try to earn it or curry favor with him. This isn't a transactional thing, a quid pro quo, if I do this, God will do that. No, he's done it all. And now in living response to that, we give him all that we are. And as verse 5 ends, note that this type of sacrifice, the one that's given in response to his grace, this living sacrifice, we see there is actually what God wants. For those last words are there, it says that it is acceptable to him through Christ. Now, before we leave verse 5 and what we've just talked about, I want you to think about this, this huge change, or you might even say a paradigm shift, that has taken place in our relationship with God because of Jesus. And also between what was available to us in the Old Testament before the cross and what we have now in the New Testament after the cross. And it is this. In the Old Testament, the sacrifice was made of a dead animal in a building that was called the temple. And the sacrifice of that dead animal in that building called the temple was made by a priest. And there was only a, a very few of them, a special class of people. And that sacrifice was for sin. And it was never completely acceptable because they had to keep on offering it all the time, week after week, month after month, year after year, century after century. Thousands upon thousands of innocent animals had to be sacrificed, which by faith would then give a temporary covering for sin, but they would never, ever fully and forever and finally pay for all sin. Yet all of that, all that went on in those sacrifices was to point to, was to picture, was to give a promise of what God had said would one day come. And that was a sacrifice for sin that would end all sacrifices for sin. And that's what we have in Jesus. So by, in contrast, if you think about what we're, we've just seen here in the New Testament, how sacrifices and priests and, and all that stuff works, the only sacrifice called for in the New Testament is living. And it's not an animal, it's us. So it's not dead, it's living. It's not an animal, it's us. And it is no longer made in the temple, but rather our bodies are called, what? The temple of the living God. So the sacrifice is made in us, not in a building. And it's a sacrifice that's totally acceptable to God because it comes to him, as our verse says, through Jesus who was already fully, finally, and forever paid for all sin. And so all we have to do to receive that payment for sin on our own account is, as this section started, come to Jesus. That's all you have to do. Now in verse 6, those of you that are in the Truth Seekers class on Mondays will appreciate that. He's going to quote from Isaiah, and he's going to quote from Isaiah again. So we're going to learn a little bit about the history that Isaiah records in a second. But in verse 6, Peter quotes from Isaiah 28:16, where God says that in Zion, which is a mountain in Jerusalem that basically became over time synonymous with Jerusalem, he is laying down a chosen and precious cornerstone, which is clearly from what we've seen a reference to Jesus as this promised one who outside of the city 
would on a Passover 2,000 years ago forever do what we just talked about, pay for all sin. So keeping in mind the context here in Peter, which is that he has been talking about those who come to Jesus being built up into a spiritual house, the church, verse 6 is telling us that Jesus is the cornerstone of that house, this house, the church, that is made up of all redeemed sinners for all time. That's what the church is. And Jesus is the cornerstone or foundation stone of it. In other words, he is the foundation of the church. There can be no church without Jesus. You take him out of the church or allow other things to begin to crowd him out of the church, and the church will fall apart, just like that condo building, the Champlain Towers in Florida. Remember, it collapsed because of the corrosion of its foundation. So you let Jesus corrode in your church, let him no longer be the focus of your church, and watch out. You see, in ancient cultures, every building had to start with a cornerstone. And the cornerstone, I, I told you we'd learn some architecture engineering here in a minute. The cornerstone was the first stone that was laid in the construction of a building. And the cornerstone was also used to set or determine the direction of the building, the direction that it would point, and every stone was aligned in relation to the cornerstone. And the cornerstone would often also bear the stamp or the mark of the architect or builder. And in many pagan religions of ancient times, a sacrifice would actually be made on the cornerstone before the other stones were laid on top of it. So when people in Peter's day who lived in that culture heard him use this word cornerstone to describe Jesus, it surely would have brought those types of things to mind for them. The spiritual house of the church, made up of all of us as living stones, had to start with Jesus as the first living stone. And it is Jesus who, through his word and spirit, determines the direction of his church. And Jesus bears the mark or stamp of the living God. For he is, as my own salvation verse, Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. Or as Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. And the sacrifice that made our salvation possible upon which this church is built was made in his body. And those nails, as they were driven through him, and as he was hung on a cross, gave us that sacrifice. So, if there was no mortar in ancient buildings, which is the bond that holds, uh, or what, what is the bond then that holds us as stones to Jesus, the first cornerstone? We already learned that he knits us together by whacking off the, the rough spots and sanding us down. And while Jesus may have to do that to, to cause us to be able to stick to each other, Jesus has no rough edges. And he takes us just as we are. For Romans 5.8 says that he loved us while we were yet sinners. So how then are we bound to Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us it is at least three things, all of which are from him. I'm going to talk about each of them briefly. And they are the Holy Spirit, love, and faith. The Holy Spirit, you see, causes us to be born again, causes what Peter talked about earlier, being born again to a living hope. And the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, literally baptizes us into Christ and into his church. And every Christian 
we're told, has the Holy Spirit. And the love of Jesus for us is so strong that nothing can separate us from it. That's the message of Romans 8, 38 and 39, where it says that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, at the end of verse 6 and the first part of verse 7, we see another thing that helps connect us to Jesus as the cornerstone. It says there, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. So that tells us that it is by belief, or in other words, faith, which Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us is a gift from God. It is by that that we are bound to Jesus. So the Holy Spirit, love, and faith is the mortar, the glue that knits us to Jesus. And it is the work of Jesus and roughing off all of our rough edges and sanding us down that is the mortar that glues us to each other. And not only that, but what I just read from the end of verse 6 and the first part of verse 7 says that we will never be put to shame. Never be put to shame. So think about this. Jesus not only took our sins to the cross with him, but he also took our shame for our sins to the cross with him. Sure, we can grieve over our sins, and we should, as long as that leads us to repentance, to a heartfelt desire to turn and change from them. But we need not feel any shame over them anymore. Wow, isn't that an amazing thought? How freeing is that? Now look, the enemy, I must warn you, wants us to wallow in guilt and shame when we sin. Because that, he can't take away our salvation, but that will make us useless to God. But remember, the Word of God says right here that if we believe in Jesus, if we keep coming to Jesus, we will never be put to shame. So, brothers and sisters, when those thoughts of guilt and shame come into your mind, and they will from time to time, extinguish them. Extinguish them as those flaming darts with the truth of God's Word, like we have right here in this verse, that we will not be put to shame. Now, as the section ends, we see from the second part of verse 7 to the end of verse 8 that for those who refuse to believe in Jesus, they have no cornerstone. And instead, they stumble over Jesus. For it says, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter is again quoting from Isaiah here, specifically from Isaiah 8.14. And when Isaiah wrote this about 700 B.C., he wrote it in this context. Judah, which was the southern kingdom after the nation of Israel had split into two about 200 years earlier, Israel being the northern kingdom, Judah being the southern kingdom. When he wrote this, Judah was worried about an alliance, or the word they actually used, uh, one way of translating it was conspiracy, between Syria, which was above Israel, and then Israel, that was right above Judah. And the conspiracy was that Israel and Syria were going to combine to invade Judah, and they were extremely worried about that. And so, at this point in chapter 8 in Isaiah, instead of trusting in the Lord to deliver them from this threat, the people of Judah, led by their leaders, made a pact with Assyria, which is even further north and east of Syria. We know it as Babylon. 
They made a pact with Babylon to protect them. And that became their undoing for everything because that man-made plan of Judah's leaders not trusting in God but rather trusting in their own political savvy and and diplomatic wisdom badly backfired on on them because you know what happened. It was then that when Assyria came to supposedly protect them from Syria and Israel that Assyria took all of them captive into what we know know as the 70-year Babylonian captivity. So the immediate application of this verse coming out of the context that Isaiah first wrote it in is don't trust in anything other than the Lord to be your solid rock and your protector or your savior. Now, given that Jesus was also rejected by the religious leaders of his day, and Peter had seen that and and, and witnessed it, Peter no doubt also had them in mind when he quoted from Isaiah and said this now 700 years later. Because those religious leaders, you see, were seeking to build a temple made of human hands. A temple where they had the positions and the seats of great importance and where to be a devout person in the way they had perverted God's truth at that time, it meant that you trusted in your own religious efforts to save you from God's holy wrath at your sin. And since this letter of Peter's was also written to the early church that was under heavy persecution from Rome by now, the statement also would have been an encouragement to the early church to not repeat the errors of Isaiah's day by trusting in their own politics or wisdom rather than God to protect them from Rome. So if you put all of those specific, pretty clear applications together, here's the bottom line, what we can conclude. It's this. There is a much bigger wrath to come bigger than anything that Babylon or Rome or any nation ever in the history of this earth could ever bring. For the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means that nobody, nobody can make it to where God dwells in glory, which is heaven, on their own. And the Bible goes on to say in Romans, three chapters later in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin... Or in other words, what we have earned, all we deserve, it says, is death. And it's not talking there just about physical death, but rather spiritual death or eternal separation from this Zoe, this real life from God in all of its fullness, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, intellectually, because that is found only in God. So thinking through all the ways in which Peter has used these last verses— Here's what we can can conclude. Don't trust in politics. Don't trust in government to save you from this problem of spiritual death. Don't trust in your own wisdom or philosophy or ideas to save you from this problem. Don't trust in anything you can do, like building big temples like they were doing at that time, to save you from it. And don't trust in religion or religious leaders who give you all kinds of things you're supposed to do to save you from it. Instead, trust only in Jesus. Come to Jesus and keep on coming to him. For us today, when we remember what a cornerstone is, as well as Peter's declaration there that we've seen that Jesus is our cornerstone, the broader application of this verse is that there is no solid rock upon which someone who rejects Jesus 
can possibly build their lives. There is no unfailing compass to set the direction of their lives as the cornerstone would set the direction of the building. There is no mark or stamp of God on them as there was on that cornerstone as, as God being the architect and designer of their lives. And there is no sacrifice to pay for their sins. And as a result, they will live forever with absolutely torturous guilt and shame. They can't claim that verse that we can, that we need not be ashamed. So God has led me to ask now as we close uh, a few questions, actually just two, starting with this. Is Jesus, and this is a question for everybody here, including those online, is Jesus your cornerstone? Because as we have just seen, all the blessings and benefits that come by having him as your cornerstone can be yours if he is your cornerstone so that you won't collapse into a dark and desperate eternity, into this eternal death, this lack of Zoe, just like that condo tower collapsed in the middle of the night in Florida. And for everyone else here who may have already come to Jesus and is continuing to come to Jesus, who has made Jesus their cornerstone, the question for us then is, are you leaning on him as your cornerstone? Are you taking the burdens of your life and letting him bear the weight of them or whatever your burdens are right now? Because he can take it. You see, that's what cornerstones do. They bear the weight of the entire building. And so for everyone who knows Jesus as their cornerstone right now, he is sitting there saying, like that old song from the 60s, you know what? You ain't heavy. You're my brother. I can take the weight. So let him bear the weight of all of your worries and your guilt and your shame. Now, later in the same letter, Peter is also going to tell us in 1 Peter 5, 7, we'll see it in a few months, to cast all our anxieties on Jesus because he cares for us. And that Greek word translated as cast literally meant to pitch or to throw something on something. So, to take, so the call to us this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, is to take everything that is worrying you or that is a burden for you right now and give them all a big old giant heave-ho and put them on Jesus. Pitch them, throw them on Jesus because he cares for us and he's invited us to do that. And if Jesus is not your cornerstone this morning, you can make him that right now. Just come to him, as Peter said, and keep on coming to him through all the trials and difficulties of life and all the blessings of life. Keep on coming to him. Come to him as your savior, the one who can save you from the wrath of God that is to come that's much worse than what Rome could bring or the Babylonians can bring, and that, as we've seen, we all deserve for our sins. Come to him, and you will find eternal Zoe instead of eternal death. Come to him, and you will find a solid rock upon which you can build your life and upon which you can set the direction of your life. And come to him, and the mark of God will be in you and on you, and his sacrifice will cover all of your sins. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for um, just these profound truths from your word. Lord, thank you that you um, work through Isaiah and through Peter, all these different human authors, Lord, to keep bringing us this same message, Lord, of a Savior, of one who can save us and did save us from all of our sins. Lord, I just pray for anyone here that doesn't know you yet, that 
something in what they heard from your word this morning, Lord, would strike them to the core that they would realize their need for you. Don't let them think about it any longer. May this be the day that they say, yes, Jesus, I'm coming to you. I want to keep coming to you. I want you to be my cornerstone. I want to be glued to you by your love, and I want to be glued to everyone else that already knows you as well. So do your work, Lord, uh, in the hearts of those uh, who you have set aside to come to you this morning. And Lord, for the rest of us here that have already come to you, um, I know in a crowd this size, I, I know many of the people here, Lord, there's many burdens. There's family issues, there's marriage issues, there's sickness issues, there's financial issues, there's job issues. Lord, we weren't meant to carry those on our own. Lord, may we just cast them on you. Give them the old heave-ho, Lord. Because as your word says, you care for us. And, and you as the cornerstone, Lord, can bear all those sins. You bore the incredible, unimaginable weight of our sin. So certainly you can bear the weight of these much less minor things. So let's all, as brothers and sisters in Christ, just give him those burdens this morning. In Jesus' name.